I'll be reading from the book of First Peter, chapter 5. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Chad. Morning, everybody. Welcome again to Redemption Arcadia. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm the teaching pastor here, and we are in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have your Bibles or your apps, you want to turn there, uh, go ahead. Um, before we get to that, though, I just want to mention one other quick announcement, more of a, more of a celebration announcement than a preview announcement. Um, uh, part of our Christmas offering this year was to do a service project, and we are developing a relationship with Gateway School, which is on 35th Street south of McDowell, and uh, this is our second time over there, and we are planning on a third and a fourth now, uh, early next year, which we're excited about, but yesterday we went over there to fix up their third courtyard area over there, and we've got some pictures to show you about how that went. Um, we were building some planters for them, we did some landscaping, we also rebuilt a I love that picture of Chelsea leaning on that drill. That just cracks me up. Um, there's there's a, a path that re, we rebuilt. That doesn't show anywhere near the length of the path. But uh, also you notice that there were uh, 15 eighth graders from the school who joined us. And they were just terrific. It was magnificent to have them with us. Uh, really helped us. And we had a great time. We were there for uh, almost four hours. There's Amy who's like all of five feet, and she, you should have seen her throwing around those 40-pound ba bags of soil. Tell you, I wouldn't want to tangle with her, that's for sure. Uh, there we were filling the, well, there they were filling the, um, uh, the planters, a couple other pictures. It was a great time. Uh, last picture is of uh, uh, the, the part of the group. Uh, by the time we assembled everybody to take the picture, about half the people had already gone home, so the group was actually twice that size, but it was a it was a great day, and the principal there, Sean Hannafin, is so thankful for the relationship that we're uh, developing with them, and so I want to thank all of you who showed up uh, yesterday. It was great, and uh, especially uh, what I really enjoyed, I mean, we got some work done, but what I really enjoyed was the way the people from Arcadia were, were developing relationships with those eighth graders. That was especially cool to watch and, and uh, be able to see some connections being made there, so thank you for that. And you'll be hearing more about our work at Gateway. So also want to just, uh, I wasn't here last week doing a wedding in Portland for two Redemption Arcadia people. Uh, they, they happen to be from Portland. Their families are up there. So I was able to do that. That was a, a, a good time and a blessing. But um, an even better time, I think, having listened to the message, was Rob Witham filling in for me last week. Most of the time, you know, Rob is playing in the band. And he was up here again uh, today helping Sean lead. But uh, he did a spectacular job last week, did he not, for those of you who are here? And it's okay if you want to show him a little love and appreciation. It was really good, really, really good. It is, 
it is wonderful to know that I can go away and the teaching is actually, some people would say, better when I leave. So, nice. So we are in First Peter, a little review before we get to chapter 5. We have maintained all along the conspicuous gospel centrality of this letter. I mean, Peter starts right out in verse 3 in the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of his great mercy, according to his great mercy, according to the fact that he loves and cares for us, he has caused us to be born again. That's the good news, the gospel. And what we've been born into is a living hope through the resurrected Jesus Christ. So the living hope that we're born into is actually Christ and then Christ in us. So the gospel is good news for us. And as a, as a result of the, that wonderful life-giving gift, as a result of the, of the privilege and the status that we have of being in Christ, as Paul likes to say, Peter then explains that we have a call on our lives to holiness and honorable conduct, not only with each other in the church, but also with people outside of the church who don't even believe what we believe. We, we are to act with holiness and, conduct, and, and, honor, uh, and honor with everybody. And as a result we would say that we are the new temple of God. Peter has uh, language uh, that deals with that in, in chapter 2. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, and a royal priesthood that is called to offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God through the power of Christ in us. And Peter says that you and I, as a part of this church, we are living stones being built on the foundation of the living stone, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, but we are being built up into one magnificent spiritual house. And Peter says that we're also called to submit to authority. Yes, even authority that we maybe uh, don't necessarily like or are pleased with, so we're called to submit to government authority, workplace authority, and household authority. But I would suggest to you that that's really the point, I don't think that it would be likely that Peter would have to instruct us in submitting to authority if, if the only authority we had was authority that we liked and we agreed with and gave us great pleasure every time we followed it. The challenge is in the fact that we're going to be following authorities that we don't necessarily always agree with or, or like. And then finally, we spent the last four weeks discussing the topic and the issue of suffering. And Peter teaches that because of the gospel in our lives, Suffering can be patiently endured, suffering can be redeemed for many, many good things, and suffering can lead us to a life of service and worship. So service of others and worship of God. It's been said by many people that um, as, as difficult and as challenging as suffering is, suffering really is for our good and for God's glory. That's the theological approach to suffering. And then if you were to read ahead into 2 Peter, his second letter, I, I think that if you get to verse 3 again of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, which is a, a, a critical verse in that letter, it also tends, I think, looks back at 1 Peter and is a wonderful summation of what 1 Peter is. Here's what he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The divine power of Jesus has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So everything we need for life and godliness is given to us by Jesus. And that, and that through the knowledge of him, Jesus, who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so now we come to chapter 5, 
We're going to spend two weeks in chapter 5, and let me just start by saying, uh, if you listen to Chad, read the five verses that we're going to look at today. It might seem as if what should be happening today is that somebody else is up here preaching this message and that Sean, Sean, and me are sitting right there because Sean Johnson, Sean Mortensen, and myself uh, constitute the elder board here at Redemption Arcadia. We are the elders. And it, and it sounds as if the only people that Peter is really addressing here are the elders. Well, maybe. I think we should go through it and kind of check it out. So verse 1, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you. So yes, primarily, this is to the elders, the spiritual leaders of the church. And, and, then, he's, and then he gives us the platform by which he has a right to in, in his mind, to address them as elders. He says, as a fellow, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and as well as a partaker in the glory that will be revealed. So that's verse 1. It's Peter setting the stage, setting the platform for the instruction that's to come. And, and I'll tell you, it, it, if you haven't already figured this out, you haven't been here and you haven't heard me say this time and time again, there is a level of frustration that goes with preaching and teaching the letter of 1 Peter. Because there is hardly a verse that goes by that isn't just loaded with stuff that literally we could spend an hour on each verse, it seems like, in 1 Peter. And, chap and verse 1 uh, in chapter 5 is, is another one of those uh, verses. So the persons to whom this exhortation and instruction that Peter is giving... They are the presbytros of the church. That's the, the Greek word. That's the word that's translated as elders. You could also translate it as pastor or maybe uh, the spiritual leaders of the church. They are the elders of the churches that he is writing to. And they are elders by office, not necessarily by age. I know that when we hear the word elder, <clears throat> almost always the first thing that comes into our mind is somebody who is elderly or older. And generally that is true, even of this word that's, that's used here, but we also have to look at context whenever we do a word study and, and begin to recognize that Peter is using it in a different way here. It, it, for instance, it should go without saying that you could have an 80-year-old guy, perfectly good guy, wonderful guy, but let's say he's only come to know Christ in the last year, he's probably not the guy that you would necessarily uh, 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 elect or place in the office of elder in order to lead a church. Uh, on the other hand, you have a guy like Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, who is young chronologically, but he's been walking with Jesus for quite some time and has shown a depth of, of spiritual uh, maturity with Christ uh, that is, frankly, uh, in most cases, unparalleled, so he becomes an elder. So Peter's writing to those who occupy the office of elder, not just old guys, although most of them probably are older. It's just kind of a fact of life that that's usually how it works out. And it's important to note, how does this instruction here follow and flow with the rest of the letter? How does it relate to the end of chapter 4? Because, it, again, it seems as though Peter, it really, the way it starts, it's almost like he's dropped what he was talking about in chapter 4, and he's on to a whole new subject in chapter 5. Mm. The problem there is that the Greek word at the beginning of the verse, which is un, uh, the ESV translates it as so, 
insists that what comes after that un is actually related to what came before it. That word can also be translated as therefore or now. And, and, and virtually every time you see that word, it means that it's connecting two passages. So what is the thought that Peter is continuing here? And, and I think it goes back maybe to verse 17 of chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 4, where Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The judgment is coming. And it seems that the ones held to account first will be the elders in the church. Thank you for not applauding. Now, it's not that the judgment won't fall on everybody. It's, it's going to fall, okay? But, but if you read through Scripture, at times you begin to sense that there is a level of accountability that the church leaders are going to be held to that, that seems to be a, a tad distinct from, from everyone else. And, and, and once again... We see that this instruction also has at least in part to do with the idea of suffering. So we're continuing the, the thought of suffering here as well. So think about this. Pastors or elders, I'm going to use those words interchangeably here. Uh, pastors need to be caretakers of sufferers and they have a high calling that demands submission to the perfect judgment of God. So it's a challenge to be an elder. And I'm not telling you this because I want you to feel sorry for Sean, Sean, and myself. I'm telling you this because it's in the text and we need to deal with it. And we mention it because it helps us to segue into uh, the rest of the verse, which is something about Peter that I think we can glean from here that's really pretty good, that should be uh, something that would apply to many of us if we start to dig in around with who Peter really is. Notice that the apostle Peter calls himself an elder here. So again, think about it. We could argue that Peter's status is so far beyond these leaders to whom he is writing because Peter is not just an elder. Certainly he is an elder, but he's not just an elder. He's an apostle. He's one of the 12. This is somebody who spent three years living with, walking with, sitting under, and following Jesus. And he didn't follow him on Twitter. He followed him in person. They were squared off shoulder to shoulder having face-to-face -face conversations with each other. Yet he calls himself a fellow elder when he writes these guys. Now, we believe that Peter does this in humility to let them know there's some kinship here. I'm in this with you. I, I, I'm letting you know that, that, that there is some interpathy, some solidarity that we have together. I am speaking out of the same experience that you have, and so I can speak with some credibility. And it is a humbling and encouraging thing for Peter to do. And then look what else Peter does. He says, he says I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Again, he could have said something else. He could have said, I'm a witness to the resurrection. Or he could have said, Hey, I was, I was there at the transfiguration. I'm a witness to that. I was there when all that stuff with, you know, Elijah and Moses happened. I was there. Now think about both of those statements would have been true. The challenge or the problem with both of those statements is that they would have also exalted Peter in a way. It would have been, you know, you read something like that and it's kind of like, look at me, I was there. And so the focus maybe goes on Peter instead of, instead of Christ in the gospel, which is where Peter wants to keep the focus. So instead, I believe in humility, he, calls these, he recalls to these fellow elders the most painful moment in his life, the day he abandoned Jesus, the day he denied Christ. Why does he recall this? Why didn't he say those other things? Well, I spent a lot of time studying this, looking into it, reading the commentaries, and having conversations about it. 
And, and so some of this would be conjecture, but I would say perhaps it is to let people know that anyone can be forgiven, reconciled, and used by God. No matter who you are or what you have done. This guy made a promise to Jesus that he would not leave him, that he would not deny him, that he would go to his death with him. And then he walked away from that. I mean, this is a fairly severe thing. And, and if you were Peter, you might think about the guilt and the shame that you would feel for having done that. Yet he's talking about, I'm forgiven. I am reconciled. And not only that, I'm being used by God. Anybody can do this. It's a beautiful example, I think, of the humility and sensitivity that the gospel can bring to our lives. And it shows what a different person Peter is now as opposed to the Peter of the gospels. I mean, it's a, he's, a, he's a transformed person here. And, and I would also say Peter is a typical elder. He's a sinner saved by grace. Typical elder. Peter also does say this. He says he's a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed couple of points here. First again, I don't think Peter is saying this to brag. He's saying this to encourage those, those that he is writing to. The only qualification to be a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, meaning citizenship in the new Jerusalem, uh, somebody who gets to be in heaven, the only qualification is that you are a sinner saved by grace. And that should encourage you and me as well. And second of all, Peter is saying that this also points out something that should be, uh, we should pretty well understand by now, and that's this, that that suffering always precedes glory. Peter has certainly suffered, and, and Peter is going to suffer more. If you were here last week, you recall Rob talking about how Peter died. Uh, in only a couple of years uh, from now, Peter is going to be uh, crucified upside down. I would say that's suffering. But I would also suggest that you and I have suffered too. We've all suffered. If we pass the mic around, we could hear how everybody has suffered in one way, shape, or form. And the reason is because suffering is part of the human condition. It's part of the context we live in. Uh, we, we were born into a world that is fallen and corrupt as a result of what happened in Genesis 3, the original sin. And when we talk about original sin, yes, we are talking about that first sin, but it's so much more than that. When we reference original sin, we're talking about the fact that that uh, human nature has been corrupted by this sin nature now forever and ever and ever. That's the way it's going to be here on earth. And not only was human nature corrupted, but the creation was corrupted as well. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that even the creation cries out for redemption. And so as a result, we're born into this corruption, and so we're going to suffer. There's no way we can get away from it, though we try and we try and try. We try to escape it. But for those who are in Christ, the glory is coming. There's a parallel passage in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul writes this. Verse 5, starting in verse 5, he says, and by the way, Paul is writing this within the context of making sure that we understand how important it is to live our lives with humility. And he says, as his example, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Other translations say it this way, have the mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, or have the same attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, look at the world through the truth of 
of Jesus. Through the grid of Jesus, that's how you're supposed to look at the world and truth and reality. That's how you're supposed to understand it. And then he says, and by the way, here are the characteristics of the mind of Christ. Starting in verse 6, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, equa- did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In other words, Jesus suffered. He suffered. Then verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So suffering precedes glory. And Peter writes this. His desire is that we would be encouraged, not only in in his day, but also today, all of his readers. This is written to the elders, but it should encourage every one of us here today. Then he says to the elders in verses 2 and 3, and we'll do it within the context of him talking to the elders mostly on these two verses. He says this, he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now there's an overarching metaphor at play here, and it's the metaphor of sheep and shepherds. So with that in mind for our interpretive framework, we can get to work on these two verses. Now, why would somebody own sheep? Because they're cute and they play fetch? Not really. They own them mostly for economic reasons, for their crop, for their fleece, and, and their wool, and sometimes their chops. Well, it's been said that there are two good ways to summarize these verses. Here they are. Number one, pastors regard the flock more than the fleece. Number two, pastors feed the flock, don't fleece the flock. So how might we, using Peter's words in these verses, explain these two summary statements? Well, first he says to shepherd the flock that is among you. This is interesting because this language betrays the idea that it is God who gives the flock to the elders, uh, to pastor. As one commentator put it, he says the idea of worldly church growth and marketing strategies may be at odds with a biblical understanding of how churches actually grow. Now that's an interesting statement considering the fact that we live in a day where there is now an entire industry that teaches people how to grow uh, churches through business and marketplace strategies. Now I'm not saying that because I want us to abandon all pragmatic thinking. That's not why I'm saying it. The reason I'm saying it is that we must be careful what we put our hope in. We have to be careful what we're putting our hope in. And if we're putting our hope in worldly strategies and not in the gospel of Christ, we're going to have issues. I just, I continue to come back to C.S. Lewis's notion of first things and second things. Don't put your hope in second things. Put them in the first things, which is Jesus. So Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now offers his strategy for the best way to lead and care for a church. He says, first of all, that the pastors and elders should exercise oversight. The word oversight translates the Greek word episkopeo, and that, and that Greek word is so much more expansive than we might get out of the English word oversight. One commentator says that in the context of the sheep-shepherd metaphor, 
episcopeo means that the elders will feed, care for, protect, and correct the sheep, the flock. Feed, care for, protect, and correct. That is, that is a comprehensive job description and responsibility. But if you think about it, aren't those things that essentially address what it is that a flock needs? Now, now for just a second, you're not a sheep, okay? You're a human being. Don't you need to be fed? Don't you need to be cared for? Don't you need to be protected? And don't you need to be corrected? All of those things are absolutely true. And so what we find out is that episcopeo is not a domination word, but rather it's a serving word. It's a humble yourselves and serve word. And then Peter gives three contrastive imperatives that further explain the ethos of episcopeo. Here's the first one. Pastor does this willingly, as God has called him, not under coercion, obligation, or force. Uh, many people work jobs, jobs of all sorts of income levels and responsibility levels, not because they want to or because God has given them some calling or gift or talent for that job, but rather because they feel like they have no choice. They have to work at that job for economic reasons, for lifestyle reasons, for whatever. You're trapped in this job. A lot of people work in jobs like that. They have no choice, and they wish they had a choice. Peter says this is not the best paradigm for you to be an elder under. You should serve because you want to be there. And that includes elders who are paid by the church. In other words, staff elders, Sean, Sean, and myself. And that includes elders that are not paid by the church. Elders that have jobs elsewhere, but then are called into church leadership to help supplement and support and to work with the, the paid elders, which we don't have any yet, but we are working on someday having those as well. Peter instructs, do not do this out of some sense of pressure, but rather do it because you know that God has gifted and called you into this leadership. The practical implication of this, of course, is that elders should mostly enjoy serving, even though it can be a very challenging and difficult job. Second thing Peter says is that he says that elders are to oversee the flock, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And that word eagerly translates the Greek word prothumos, which literally means with a cheerful mind. So the way we might say it today is, is uh, oversee the flock not for shameful gain, but with a good attitude. You know, happy, happy, happy. Just imagine a big old ZZ Top beard. Okay, you got to watch more TV. Never mind. Let's also talk about what Peter, by, that joke didn't kill in first service either. But let's also talk about what Peter means when he says elders are not to serve for shameful gain. Peter is not saying that pastors and elders shouldn't be paid for working in the church. In fact, there are several places in the Bible where it's clear that pastors and elders can and should be paid for their work. Jesus even taught this principle. But for shameful gain, for the type of pay that allows an extravagant and profligate lifestyle, mm, no. One author says this, pastors should not have a mercenary interest in serving the church. Y'all know what a mercenary is? A mercenary takes large sums of money for doing things he doesn't really care about. That would be a bad person to have as a pastor. Went to school with a guy. 
whose sole motivation for going into the ministry was that he thought it would be a way that he could get a lot of money. Now, we could have all kinds of discussions about how messed up that is from a variety of perspectives, and I never would have believed it until I actually heard him talk about it, and he didn't just talk about it once. Every time I was with him, this was his focus in life. I'm going to become a minister because I know it's a way that I can get a lot of money. Understand, it's, a, it's, a, it's good to make a living as a pastor, but do it reasonably. Uh, here's how Edmund Clowney summarized this second imperative of Peter's. He says, be not greedy for money, but greedy to serve. And I love Piper's perspective on this. He says, we are not paid to do ministry, rather we are freed up financially to do ministry because we are paid. And then the third pair of contrastive imperatives goes like this. Peter says, don't dominate those that you are shepherding. Don't be a totalitarian, but rather lead by example. Show the flock that Jesus has invaded and captured your heart and your life. So you can see each of these imperatives has a negative and a positive. Don't do this, but do this. And, and, and I want you to think about those positive, those positive commands. Pastor because you're called and given a desire. Pastor with a cheerful mind. Pastor by living a life that demonstrates that Jesus has captured your heart. Now consider, what might inspire a pastor to press into these positive pronouncements? Well, I think in Peter's case, especially, I think the, mo the great motivator would be love, would be love. Uh, some of you, the, the, those of you that know the Gospels pretty well, you know that in the Gospel of John towards the end, there's this exchange between Peter and, and Jesus that's post-resurrection. And Peter was, was probably dwelling on the guilt and the shame of having denied Christ during this conversation. And, and at the same time, Jesus was doing what Jesus loves to do. He was, he was redeeming and restoring sinners. And, and they're on the shore of the, of the Sea of Tiberias. They, uh, the, the guys had been out all night fishing and as they're coming in, they had caught nothing. And as they're coming in, Jesus is standing on the shore. And they don't really, they don't recognize him at first. But he says, hey, guys, why don't you throw your net in a different way and see what happens as you're coming in. And, of course, they, they pull in the biggest catch that they've ever had in their lives. And they're very excited. And they realize that it's Jesus. Peter jumps in the water and swims to him and all this stuff. And so then they, they set up a fire and they have breakfast together. I am 53 years old. I have never had fish for breakfast. And I'm not planning on it anytime soon. But apparently, across the big pond, it happens quite frequently. Anyway, no fish for breakfast. But they were satisfied. And then after breakfast, they're sitting there and they're talking. And this exchange happens between Jesus and Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And then Jesus said to him a second time, son, Simon, John, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend to my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I understand those of you that have studied this. There's a, there are different Greek words for the word love in there, and there's some interesting discussion to be have about, had about that. But what I want to call your attention to here is that Jesus is calling Peter unequivocally into pastoral ministry. He's calling him to be a shepherd. And notice that the call is not out of love for people. That love will come. 
But the primary call is not out of love for people. Rather, it is out of love for Christ that ministry is born. Again, we, we have to get the first things first, as C.S. Lewis would say. We cannot love people properly without loving Christ. It's only out of love for Christ that someone can be a shepherd of his church. Finally, think about this. The shepherds of the church, the elders, Sean, Sean, and I, we're also sheep, right? Uh, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the, the God shepherd. We are the under shepherds. You know, if you, if you read or study the mafia, you know that the mafia has underbosses. La Familia. Well, we are La Familia of a different sort, a vastly different sort, but our boss is Jesus. He's the, he's the one who's in charge. He is the senior, 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 senior pastor. Now, we exercise authority. All of us, to some extent, exercise authority under the leadership and guidance of Jesus, but he is the head of the body. Peter understands this point too because right after this he says in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd comes, when he appears, when he returns, that would be Jesus, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Again, this goes right to the principle that we work and labor and suffer first and then the glory comes. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 6, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, some translations say at the proper time, we will reap if we do not give up. And in Peter's case here, what we will reap is this unfading crown of, of glory. And I think that's cool because I've always wanted one of those. I used to ask my mother every year at Christmas, could I have an unfading crown of glory? She says, I get socks, so I'm still waiting. But what is that unfading crown of glory really? Well, well first of all, the, the Greek word for crown is stephanos. Anybody here named Stephen or Stephanie? You are a crown. And if you're not, shape up. Just kidding. But it is interesting, the first Christian martyr was named Stephanos. Maybe a little biblical, was he the first to gain that unfading crown of glory? Maybe a little biblical irony there? Second of all, here's the reason I think Peter would use the idea of a crown as a reward, and, and in particular, an unfading or an eternal crown as a reward. The people that he was writing to lived in a context where athletes would go into training for months and even years for games that were similar to our Olympic games where they would compete in the Roman Empire. And, and if you won these competitions, you would win a laurel leaf crown, like a wreath that you could put on your head. And this crown, this laurel leaf crown would signify or symbolize not only victory in your event, but also certain privileges in the Roman Empire for having won. For instance, you could be exempt from taxes for the rest of your life. Your firstborn son maybe not have to serve in the military. And, and as good as those benefits might be, they are temporal benefits or temporary benefits that don't transcend eternity. What, what Peter's talking about is a, is a crown that transcends eternity. And the laurel leaf crown would soon wither. You'd put it on your mantle and a month later you'd be back vacuuming up laurel leaf leaves. Peter is telling us that when we run the race with God in his church, our crown will not only 
have temporal value, but it will be eternal, unfading. And, 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 and this crown metaphor is something that all of us can look forward to. It's, it's again, a reference, I believe, to chapter 1, verse 4, where Peter writes this. He proclaims that we've been born in also, not only into the living hope, but we've been born into an inheritance that is guaranteed in heaven for us, and it is an inheritance that will never fade, spoil, or perish. We're all born into this glorious inheritance. And, and I love this because, again, again, it, it, you see the consistency in this letter. You see Peter just continually circling back to these important themes. He just keeps pounding on these important themes. The crown is a reference to the second coming of Jesus. And, and, and the crown, we must remember, is, is a glorious crown. It is a crown of glory, but, it's a, but, but the glory is not ours. The glory is, is God's. And it is out of his love for us that he bestows this glory on us. If it weren't for God and the gospel, we would not have this glory. And consider one more thing from this verse. Rob brought this up last week. The, the word that we translate as glory literally means of weight or heavy. And so if you were alive during the 1960s, you might say it this way. God is a heavy dude, and so if you're going to have glory from somewhere, it might as well come from him. You are not as glorious as him. You don't even have any glory until he bestows it on you. And we wrap up this paragraph with verse 5 where Peter turns to a discussion. He returns to the discussion of how leadership in the church should work. And he writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And, and verse 5 serves as the glue that her, holds all five of these verses together. And again, in that first part of the verse where Peter exhorts the younger ones to be subject to the elders, he is not necessarily talking about age, although it can be a factor. But it is clear from the context of this paragraph that whenever Peter uses the word presbytros, the word elder, that he's referring primarily to the church office. And the word he uses here for younger ones is actually the same root word that Jesus used when he was describing the new wineskins. And so Peter, what Peter is actually talking about when he says the younger ones, he's talking about newer believers. Those are those who are younger in their faith. They need to be subject, they need to submit themselves to the elders. And, and, and while it is fair to say that generally speaking, those who are mature in their faith tend to be older chronologically, and those who are newer to the faith tend to be younger in age, it does not necessarily follow that all Christian wisdom is bound up in old guys. So understand, as Paul argues in 1 Timothy, age does not necessarily qualify or disqualify someone for church leadership, but I will say to you, there is something to be said for life experience. There is something to be said for having gone through the cycles. I can tell you, I'm one of the oldest guys in this room right here, okay? Yet there are thoughts and insights that I can provide to many of you simply because I've been around the block a few more times than you have. That's just the way it is. The way I say it to a lot of people is this. When they're talking to me about something, younger people, when they're talking to me, I just, I, I've seen this movie before several times, and I know how it ends. And it's your first run through the movie. And hopefully you might listen to some counsel in that regard. 
Often you don't. You want to go ahead and push that little button where you don't know the ending until you go through it, and then you go, oh, that's the ending that Frank said. <laughs> but we've seen these movies before, those of us who are older. Okay? I can also tell you, this is true, the older I get, the smarter my father was. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Say stuff to me when I was 16 or 20 or 38, 53, roll my eyes and blow them off. I look back now and I'm going, you know, he was right there, he was right there, he was right there, he was right there. I tell this to my daughters all the time. It's not making a dent, but I'll, I'll keep trying, you know. Yet, having said that, let me flip the coin over. Just finished a, a tie, and this is, I've done this a number of times, so it's not that I'm exalting any one group over another, but I just finished 10 weeks with a group of guys, 10 or 12 of us, all of them with the exception of one other guy besides me were young. Uh, I'm, I'm 53, I was the leader of the group. I, have, I, I invite one other old guy into the group with me to sort of be there as an additional mentor. He's a, he's a wonderful Christian guy who's a successful businessman and he can help mentor young guys. And so we, we organize these studies for younger guys and, and uh, there's 10 of these guys or so, all in their 20s. And I'm the leader, yet I will tell you that sitting with those guys week after week after week and hearing some of them, not all of them, some of them were brand new to their faith, but some of them had a deep understanding of who Jesus is and his word. And I was blessed as much or more than any of the leadership that I gave to that group by younger guys. And, and, and then there's the preaching collective. Some of you know that, you know, redemption, we're one church six congregations and so every week we get together in what's called the preaching collective and all the pastors come together and discuss the passages that we're going to be teaching the, the the Sunday that's 11 days away and 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 you know the only time I'm not the oldest guy at the preaching collective is when Schrader shows up that's the only time I'm the oldest guy there we have pastors and, and, and pastors in training and interns and pastoral residents that are all younger. But these are guys that are helping all of us as leaders shape our messages on Sunday morning. And they're brilliant and they're mature. And we would be foolish not to have them speak into our lives when they're perfectly capable of doing that. It's terrific. I want you to look at it this way. Age is an elastic category. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Age is an elastic category. Now, now, check this out. Peter tells the youngsters to submit to the elders, but then, like, immediately, he says, all of you clothe yourselves in humility. Immediately, he says that. Why does he do that? Well, I'll tell you, I think, I think here's why. Even for older, wiser, mature guys... There is a tendency to be intoxicated by power. Just because you're older and more mature, mature and wiser doesn't mean that you won't be intoxicated by power. Young people get intoxicated by power too. Everybody can get intoxicated by power. But we're all susceptible to it. And, and the greatest anti-power intoxicating uh, agent in the world is humility. All of us need to embrace humility. Matthew Henry writes this, humility is the great preserver of peace and order in all churches. Consequently, pride is the great disturber of them and the cause of most dissensions and breaches in the church. 
Bill Hybels, who is a pastor in Illinois, some of you know who he is, and he's written about 20 books. He's an author as well. He's written about 20 books, most of them bestsellers. I would suggest, I've read most of his books. I would suggest to you the best book that he's ever read, and the only reason I heard about it was because he talked about it being the worst-selling book uh, of, his, uh, of his authoring career. He sold about 5,000 copies of this book, and I had to hunt it down and find it in order to buy it and read it. He thinks it's the best book he ever read, uh, he ever r wrote, okay? And, and, and he was talking about it. He was disappointed in how it sold, about 5,000 copies. The title of the book is Descending into Greatness. Now, I would argue that maybe they should have titled it something else. It might have sold a little bit better. That's sort of a, almost a depressing title. But I got a hold of this book, and it was magnificent. It's the best book I've ever read from Heibel's. And it's a book about humility. And what he does in the book is he takes that passage from Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and he spends 180 uh, uh, pages dissecting it and, and, and doing it in a way that anybody can read. It's very pedestrian. And even a North High graduate was able to read it and glean something from it. And it was terrific. And, and he talks about suffering comes before glory, but primarily he talks about this idea that we must embrace humility. We must clothe ourselves in humility. And that leads to what I want to close with, three challenges that I have for all of us. And they are all under the, the cloud of humility, if you will. Here's the first one. Seek obscurity. Be comfortable with seeking obscurity. See, that goes with humility. If you're truly humble, you will be comfortable with, even you will prefer seeking obscurity in performing service. This goes right along with what I mentioned two weeks ago when Peter talks about the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Obviously, people with speaking gifts, many of them have, have great notoriety and there's, and there's a, a public forum for them, but also you can express many, even most of the speaking gifts in obscurity, quietly with your friends, encouraging them, giving them words of mer mercy and comfort and hope. And then certainly the serving gifts. Most of the serving gifts are done in obscurity. Most of you have no idea how hard people serve in order just to make this happen every week. Now, we're not saying you need to seek obscurity with your entire life. That's not, that's not our point. It just means that it's good to have disciplines that no one knows about, especially disciplines when it comes to humbly serving. And I would tell you that I have some of those disciplines, but if I told you about them, they wouldn't be in obscurity anymore. So I can't tell you about them, and that means I have no idea how to end this point other than to tell you we embrace the idea of seeking obscurity. Second of all, be patient for the reward. We need to be patient for the reward. We need to be patient for the crown, the inheritance, whatever you want to call it. I will tell you, we're not very good at waiting, are we? We are not very good at waiting, and I think we need to be better at it. And, and waiting is a discipline that goes along with humility. People who are prideful do not wait well, but people who wait well tend to be humble people. And it's a biblical discipline. If you remember this summer when we went through the life of Joseph, one of the things that I continued to say was God's stories take a long time, don't they? Richard Mao, who wrote the, uh, the book Uncommon Decency, says we serve a slow God. Amen? So we need to be better at waiting. And I know some of you are going, I've been waiting for this sermon to end and I'm still here, so I'm doing good. Within this context, you young parents, let me just say a quick word to you. I, I understand the trials you're having. Seriously. But having a 20-year-old and a 16-year-old right now, I can tell you it is 
his word. And I know, I get this. I, it's like, Frank, I just want eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. Once. I get it. By the power of Jesus, hang in there. There is an unfading crown of glory. There's an unfading inheritance. Singles, I got you too. I got you too. I know what it's like to be single as well. And I, and I know, I, I hear this a lot. I, I, I just want someone to take a romantic interest in me who isn't driven by a corrupt agenda. I confess, I feel as bad for singles as I do anyone else given today's context. It's hard to be single. Even if you have the so-called gift of singleness, it's hard, amen? It's really hard. And so I pray for you guys. And you need prayer. But understand, there's a big old honking crown, big old 10-gallon hat crown of glory for waiting for you guys, okay? It's there. Remain faithful. Finally, number three, live a life of repentance. This also goes with humility. You have to be humble to be able to repent. Prideful people don't repent. You getting the understanding that humility is really the glue that's holding all of this together? Live a life of repentance. Know, for instance, that you're going to mess up. And then the best thing you can do when you mess up is to admit it and own it. We live in a cultural context that is just smitten with this idea of deny, 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 and hopefully it'll all go away and you won't have to experience the consequences. Christ calls us to humbly admit it and own it and repent and turn away. Martin Luther said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. So, so Peter says, clothe yourselves in humility. I think that what he's really saying there is clothe yourselves in Jesus. Think about how humble Jesus is and was. That passage from Philippians again. He's in heaven, reigning. And he humbles himself, comes down here, does not expect that his circumstance is something that he should grab onto and hang onto, but instead in humility, he came to earth and submitted himself to the cross on our behalf. So clothe yourselves in Jesus. Ultimately, it was Christ on the cross who gave us the ability in the first place to be, to be known by God, to be loved by God, and to be saved by God, which I think is the clear motivation for Matthew Henry's great quote, which I'll close with. Henry writes this, Why can we be humble? In every religion, your performance leads to a verdict. But in Christianity, the verdict leads to your performance. That's why we can be humble. The verdict has already been secured in the gospel on the cross. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and its truth. And thank you that it challenges us and that it calls us to who you want us to be. We know that you meet us where we are, God. You love us enough to, to meet us and take us where we are, but you also love us enough not to leave us there. And so by studying your word and by being in community with other believers and, and by praying, by engaging in the disciplines, we can understand that and we cannot be left where we are. So God, help us to do that. Give us the strength and the courage and the power to live this life of holiness and honor that Peter calls us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.